The scripture lesson for today comes from James. I'll be reading chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 through verse 17. You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin, and by that same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep all of it. The one who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. In every way, then, speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. There will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy overrules judgment. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and a good dose of courage for interpretation. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote what has been called his letter from a Birmingham jail on the only paper available to him, the margins of an old leftover newspaper and on various bits and pieces given to him by a trustee. That letter would later be assembled much like a jigsaw puzzle and then published in response to an open letter that had been addressed to him, though never actually sent personally, but rather published publicly in a newspaper known as A Call for Unity. Hmm, sounds well and good. Well, this call for unity, you see, was signed by eight white clergymen who had several objections to Dr. King and the nonviolent protests that his leadership group was leading. They said that Dr. King and his leaders from his group were outsiders and not locals. You know, they were from places like Montgomery <laughs> instead of Birmingham. And so in response to this critique, he reminded them in Dr. King's own letter of Alabama's horrendous history, past, present, of not upholding even existing laws that were intended to provide greater racial equality than what they had been experiencing in everyday life. So in these eight white clergymen's call for unity, they also disproved of tensions, they said, that were created by such public actions as sit-ins and marches, to which Dr. King responded, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. The white clergymen also expressed their disapproval of the timing 
of these types of public action, to which Dr. King responded in his letter that in general, wait has almost always meant never. And Dr. King went on to quote Chief Justice Earl Warren, who said in 1958 that justice too long is justice denied. Justice delayed too long, rather, is justice denied. Now, along very similar lines, Dr. King also lamented in this letter from the Birmingham jail that the myth concerning time, meaning white moderates, were all assuming that progress towards equal rights was inevitable. There was no need to push anything, and so such assertive activism as this was simply not necessary. To this, Dr. King responded, well, progress takes time as well as tireless efforts of dedicated people of good will. Tireless efforts of dedicated people of goodwill. And in closing his letter, Dr. King responded to the clergy's praise of the Birmingham police for maintaining order in a rather nonviolent way. It seems recent policing efforts got a lot gentler when the TV cameras showed up, and Dr. King felt. These were actually the exception to the general treatment that people of color had been receiving. He felt that it only improved, as I said, because now there were so many media and TV cameras. And so Dr. King, instead of responding to that, chose to praise the nonviolent protesters in Birmingham for their sublime courage, for their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. He said this, one day... The South will recognize its real heroes. One day the South will recognize its real heroes. History has a way of laying bare the bigger issues and seeing things in hindsight that we may have struggled with during the time very clearly like who are the heroes and who are the ones actually standing in the way of justice. And this is why, just like it's easier to see that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his fellow leaders were in fact the true heroes 50 plus years after this letter, it's also easier to see and make sense of the tensions of the text that we read a moment ago from the book of James 2,000 years or so later. But unlike the letter from a Birmingham jail, we do not know the precise identity of this author of this book called James. Some suspect it was James, the brother of Jesus, but most scholars say it's impossible to know the exact identity of the author. But there is enough evidence about this book called James to know that this letter was written to Christians who were scattered all over Rome outside of Israel and Palestine, and it appears because of the distances and how thinly they were scattered that they had made some compromises to the practices of the Christian faith and the way of Jesus that were causing some very real and serious challenges and injustices in their own communities. They were having trouble knowing, well, who the true heroes were. And it appears that these early Christians were picking favorites. But instead of picking favorites based on things like virtue or character or justice, 
They were picking people to be their leaders who had the most money, the most power, the most prestige in their communities. They were making heroes of these people, as I believe Dr. King would have told them, for the wrong reasons. So the author, let's just call him James, though we don't know for sure who it was, reminds them that it is the gospel of love that should characterize their interactions together as the beloved community, and not riches, not power, not a love for position or prestige, but love itself. And that they should make heroes of people who embody selfless love and sacrifice. Their predicament, I thought about it, would be similar to a church today in our time that might be in need of a pastor. And so they gather a search committee, and after finding a suitable candidate to bring to the congregation, they check the references of a minister, and they find a trail of divorces, affairs, and a wake of infidelities. But, you know, they heard the pastor ran a successful business at one time and had become wealthy. Surely, if this person, this candidate, knows how to make profit in the business world, they would be a suitable leader for the church, right? Apparently, some of the rich people these Christian communities had lifted up as favorites and leaders had actually been quite dismissive of persons who even demonstrated great need. Did you hear the words? Imagine, James said, a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace? Hey, stay warm. Have a nice meal. Those are the very words of benediction that the earliest Christian communities used after celebrating communion. Imagine having a person not even clothed. They were so poor. And sending them away, wishing them well, without having done anything to meet their need. So are you starting to see why James or someone writing in the name of James was so angry and passionate? And shall we, we can say bossy, right, in this letter? The heart of Christianity was being ripped out. Were they choosing, why were they choosing cold, disinterested leaders? Was it because they were desperate to gain traction for this Jesus movement that was still less than 100 years old and now scattered all across Rome? Were they choosing leaders based on the size of the pledges, the tithes and the offerings that they promised or that they gave? Or was James confused? Was the author of this book giving into the human condition that seems to be so tempting and universal and timeless for human beings, which is to behave as though we human beings have to earn our way into the good graces of God or one another by, well, doing something worthy of praise? If we are being completely honest, we are still plagued today with similar weaknesses and challenges in the church that we so dearly love. And Christians have historically wrestled with this tension of grace on one hand and good works on the other. And we also share a certain commonality with the audience James was addressing in our churches. Our communities feel so scattered, so much in decline. We are closing churches today across the region at an alarming rate. 
And even church communities nestled in urban and suburban areas are closing and fighting for their very existence. So when you combine fears and insecurities and anxieties surrounding these kinds of things, when people are spread thin and scattered with the influences all around us that we have to be, you know, that we have allowed this condition somehow innately to believe that we must earn God's good graces by doing God good deeds or writing big checks or staying busy or looking the part of the faithful We actually have just as much of a crisis on our hands today as the early Christian communities that James was addressing. And so I think what we'll talk about today in the remainder of this time, it was true for them, will be true for us. Have you ever had anyone warn you? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had someone warn you, be careful what you celebrate? Has anyone ever said that to you? Have you ever stopped to ponder the things that we celebrate? We celebrate very similar things, actually, to the things, apparently, that they were celebrating in the early Christian communities at James. We actually create part of the crisis. I mean, think about it. From the earliest days... We teach not only our own kids, but kids that we see, kids in the church, you know, that do good things. You know, you know, and, and so we, we celebrate success. Are you listening? Instead of celebrating that which is actually significant. Do you know the difference? Have you thought about the difference between success and significance? Is there a difference? Well, when we celebrate one another's achievements or accomplishments and not the deeper virtues of being faithful or faith-filled, we've actually begun to dig a hole for ourselves. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate when little Johnny gets all A's on his report card or when little Penny wins the basketball game for her whole team by scoring the winning bucket. We should celebrate those things. But I think we should celebrate instances of compassion more. I think we should celebrate being loving and kind and fierce for the cause of justice more than good grades or winning goals at sporting events. As a people of faith, I think we should create a culture that celebrates the times when little Johnny or little Penny make a difficult moral stand for their handicapped classmate who was excluded from recess or physical education because of their physical limitations. I think we should use joys and concerns time during prayer time at church to celebrate that time little Johnny or little Penny, or for that matter, grown-ups do something significant that require moral character or courage. Think about it. I think we should celebrate the time one of our adults wrote a letter to the editor of the paper to raise question of equal treatment for our LGBTQ citizens. Or the time little Johnny or Penny, they stood between those, that boy being teased for wearing a pink shirt at school. And they stood between that boy wearing the pink shirt and the three bullies telling him, you dress like a girl. We should celebrate that more than straight A's. More than winning goals. Because those things are more than just successful. They're significant. They change lives forever. I think as the church, we should foster the kind of community right here in our church family and beyond these walls, which celebrates the character of all that it means to follow Jesus and not just use the symbols 
of being a successful person. Success is getting all A's. It's important. It's a definite achievement. We should strive for it. But significance? You cannot put a price tag on something significant, and it cannot always be measured by a grade, but rather by the moral and ethical gravity of the situation at any given point in history. And when we view these success versus significance things correctly, these virtues, these faithful actions and moral courage and characteristics are not lived out so that we can earn anything. They're not lived out so that we can say, hey, look at me, or hey, that's, we're doing that because, you know, it wins us brownie points with God or anyone else. But because as followers of Jesus, here's what we believe as progressive Christians. Faithfulness takes practice. Hear this if you hear nothing else. Faithfulness takes practice. Dare you say it after me? Faithfulness takes practice. Now, in an effort to combat the human need to feel like we've earned the title of holier-than-thou, faithful one, super saint, some of our fundamentalist siblings these past decades, and before them, even some early church fathers and church councils, they all tried to emphasize Kind of a counter-argument, even to the book of James. They all tried to emphasize the importance of correct belief. They wanted to, in their own words, avoid the trappings of feeling like we needed to earn salvation or status or our place in the family of God. And so they promoted this idea that if we believe the right stuff in our minds, you know, all the right stuff, but you've heard the arguments, you know, you believe Jesus died for my sins and the purest doctrines about God and Jesus and the Trinity and the human condition and the Bible and all and on and on, that all of these right ideas, these right propositional statements about truth would secure for us a home in heaven, which is completely afterlife-centered for most of these folks and void of any earthly context of building beloved community here and now. And it has been my experience during my 25 years of ministry that ironically, the faith community's most concerned with correct doctrines, correct beliefs, and having people express conformity of belief are usually the least concerned when it comes to combating poverty, or racial injustices, or income equality, or reducing homelessness, or caring for the earth. The list goes on and on and on. Jesus came down pretty hard on this kind of thing. And James, if you didn't notice, came down pretty hard on this kind of thing. I think it's pretty plain how James would feel about it, wasn't it? Faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. The good news I think James is trying to proclaim here is that we do not need to live our lives trapped between our drive to appear successful and that inner need we sometimes feel to earn our way into good favor with God or with one another through good deeds, by the purity of our deeds, by the purity of our motives. That's the thing about purity tests. They're lousy and meaningless, whether driven by you know, purity tests that are set up to test you know, the measure and the accuracy of what we say we believe or to create 
some kind of measuring rod for the goodness of our deeds and why we did them. Purity tests only create animosity and are actually never accurate measure of faith or faithfulness because the ones with the most power, the ones with the most prestige, the ones with the highest positions are the ones that make these tests up. And because we're human beings, all of us, when we're the ones designing tests of, of the faithful, we'll always make sure our group wins and it's the other group that loses, right? But the good news James is proclaiming and that I want to lift up today is it's not the end even that's the goal. The journey, the practice of what it means to be faithful is the point, not the destination. And to remind ourselves that faithfulness takes practice, a lifetime of practice, and that tries we might, we'll never fully arrive. And yet one day at a time we continue the journey, because faithfulness takes a lifetime of practice. So, dear ones, let us leave behind the purity tests, and let us remind one another that the reason we say, hey, the title of this sermon, less creeds, more deeds, is not so that we can earn our way into anything, but so that we can experience the practice, the joy of the journey, the transformation together of a way of life that celebrates the personhood of our neighbors and seeks to love them as much as we love ourselves. So regardless, are you listening? Regardless of your doctrinal beliefs on any one of a myriad of Christian topics, we can be partners in this journey, if we pay attention to the needs of our neighbors and if we respond as faithfully as if we would for our own family members. Think about it. Here is a faith community. We're called to practice. We're called to try things that will help us grow in faith and faithfulness. So we try some things. And sometimes they work. And sometimes they fail miserably. But you know something? It's not about the success. It's about the significance of our faithfulness. It's about the journey. It's about the significance of the practice of the faith we say we profess. And that's why we celebrate things, different kinds of things, in this family of faith than other families of faith or other places in the world. Oh, the world, they love to celebrate big bank accounts. And they're good, we can all agree. But we'll keep on looking for significance in the journey ahead. And we'll keep on celebrating how much we are learning to care and respond in compassion and courage. And we'll keep on encouraging one another even when we failed. And so while many churches, they'll continue to bicker and stay hung up on theories of the Trinity or the virgin birth and the resurrection, dotting doctrinal I's and T's that, by the way, bring no more love into the world, harping on literal understandings of the scriptures, of the miracles, of the healing stories as a measuring stick for doctrinal purity. Well, we'll keep pointing out ways hope is born into the world like a newborn baby every day. And that God is the one authoring it into existence. And that we as people are called to nurture that, just like the Christ child, into very real ways in people's lives where they receive the unconditional welcome of the family of God. And you know what? We'll keep celebrating and throwing parties when someone assumed to be dead wakes up and walks out of the tomb this world left them in and embracing the life together with them that God gave them back. 
So while others are staring at the bottom line, let's be focused on making sure every piece of data in the whole ledger of life is one of great courage and love and quality because the joy is in the journey, because faithfulness takes practice. Now, I don't expect that we'll do it perfectly. We never have. Or without some setbacks, because we, like everyone else, we're human. And being human means we face certain challenges that are somewhat common to us all, but we have one another for this journey we've chosen to take. And by the way, the first root word of progress, progressive, is progress. So may God grant us courage and grace for progress in the days ahead in our journey. We've been given a gift, the gift called life. And we have the chance to let go of our need to appear successful and do something actually significant. Most people merely exist. But by God's grace, we have the opportunity to truly live. So let us pay attention to the holy, which so often shows up in the form of our neighbor. And let us respond faithfully, not because we feel the need to earn anything or prove anything, but because it's the practice that transforms us, loving our neighbors one person at a time. May God help us. Amen.